You have to understand what the Fed says in public is not what it says in private. You look at some of the academic studies, the literature, they know they have no idea what they're doing, but their job requires them to tell the public that they do. Hello there. How are you all? Did you have a good weekend? I didn't. Oh, my football team lost their first league win. But listen, it's been an amazing run. 11 straight league wins. I want to tell my team, my boys, I'm so proud of them. So proud of my management team. It's been an incredible start to the season, but it had to come to an end. We will come back. We're playing Letchworth tomorrow night. Fingers crossed we come back with another win. The boys will bounce back. Anyway, back onto Bitcoin, back onto money. Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I use for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and I'm delighted to say I've got Jeff Snyder back on the show. Now, Jeff was on the show about three months ago, and it generated so much response. So many emails, DMs, and YouTube comments, people agreeing, people disagreeing, people having more questions. I was kind of in the latter camp. Now, we made three shows just on the back of that one, uh, WBD535. We had Lynn Alden on the show discussing it in WBD542. Matthew Mashinsky was on the show. And then in our last show, WBD567, we had Nick Bartier on also in a response to this. Now, if you haven't listened to them, it's worth checking out. I've given you the numbers. Danny probably has linked to those in the show notes. Hopefully he has. Now, I still had loads more questions. And with the dollar shortage crushing other currencies... I wanted Jeff back on. I wanted to jump back into some of this. And what's insane is that original Jeff show was about something I didn't know anything about. And I think a lot of people don't know about. Um, I mean, the email's coming in. A lot of people are like, huh, what, what the hell what was this about? And I, I had the same feeling. Me and Danny talked about it a lot. And it's taken a bit of time to try and understand what it means and what the implication is for the global economy, for other currencies. But as we were back in Miami, what else could we do? Jeff, come on, man. Come back on the show. Let's get back into this. Now, Jeff makes a convincing claim that nobody really knows what's going on, and the efforts by central banks and government seem to be so ineffective, but the knock-on effects are also completely random. So if you don't know about this shadow system which dominates the flow of international money, you're effectively driving blind. So, yes, time to get Jeff back on, time to jump into this again. Hope you enjoy it. You got any questions about it? Give me a shout. It's a weird one to say, I hope you enjoy this, because everything's kind of fucked. <laughs> so you can't really enjoy it. But anyway, look, I hope you get something out of the show. If you've got any questions about it, you can reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Jeff, welcome back. Hey, Peter. How are you doing? Good, man. Should we bring this a little bit closer? Bring the mic in. Um, okay. Wow. Last interview caused quite, quite a stir, right, Danny? Quite a stir. Quite a stir. That's a good thing. It is a good thing. We Very had- positive. We had other people who wanted to come on the show to uh, agree and disagree with certain things. A bit of pushback. Um, I would expect a lot of pushback. A lot of discussion. Mm-hmm. That's that's the good thing, right? You yeah. Get people talking. That's what I always try to do. I still don't understand the euro dollar. <laughs> I'm still like, what the fuck is this? No, I understand a little bit more. We got a little bit further, didn't we? We're getting there. We're getting there. We understand it's a big mess. Um, but yeah, a lot of pushback. Um but it seems like everyone respects your work and likes what you bring to the table, even if they don't agree with you on everything. Um, the the issue that we seem to be facing right now, Dylan Leclerc's put out an article, and I haven't read it yet, but I intend to read it. And he talks about we're in the unwinding of the biggest financial bubble ever. Actually, you want to bring out that thing? Yeah. And I saw something from, uh, do you know Alan Farrington? No, I don't. He's a, he's a guy in the Bitcoin space. He put this chart up that seemed to explain everything that's going on right now. <laughs> so anyone listening, you have real productivity in a line, 
and then it goes down to financial engineering and you have like six more lines and then a big mess and then another big mess underneath too much leverage print the difference <laughs> he calls it the fiat finance stack and that feels pretty accurate to me yeah i think it is for the pre-crisis era yeah that you know money should be very simple right money should be something you don't even worry about something that you don't even talk about because money is a tool to allow commerce to happen and if you're spending all your time and effort thinking about financial engineering and having to hedge and doing all this stuff Money's not doing what it's supposed to be doing. Money's supposed to be very simple, a very easy tool. But we've strayed so far from that for many different reasons that that makes a lot of sense. Unfortunately, it makes too much sense. But I would say that um, as far as the expansion of money, expansion of credit, that, got, that was all pre-crisis. And in the post-crisis era, what's happened is it's gotten even more complicated because nobody can understand what's going on, what's actually happening. Everybody can see that there's a monetary issue but because of this mess, we don't really know what it is. Yeah, that's funny you should say having to think about money because you shouldn't have to, but no, you do. But no. it, uh, right now, it's one of the things me and Danny most talk about is <laughs> yeah, for the last, let's say, let's say the last five years of doing this podcast, I have to think about money a lot in terms of uh, talking about Bitcoin and making a show. But in terms of my personal money, I, don't ha I didn't have to think too much. I knew there was a certain small amount of inflation every year, but I didn't really have to think about it too much. Right now, I have to think about, well, I get paid in dollars, but I also hold pounds and I hold Bitcoin. Those dollars I'm holding, should I be transferring them to a pound because we're at the bottom? Or do I need to hold uh, the dollars because the pound's going to crash even more because the UK government have made... The answer is yes, by the way. <laughs> I, well, I, I think you might be right. Um, but, but, and because the UK government has made such a mess of things... Um, What's going to happen with my house? What's going to happen with interest rates? Never before have I had to think so much. And it's not even, Jeff, that I want to make a premium on my money. I, I just don't want to. Right. I don't want to be wiped out. And I know this happens. You know, making this show, we've interviewed a bunch of people. I interviewed a guy from Argentina once who talked about uh, uh, his entire net worth being wiped out through inflation. I've been to Venezuela. I've seen what's happened there. Uh, I, I'm seeing what's happening around the world in places like Turkey and Lebanon. I don't want to say the UK could be this is going to be the same, but I've certainly seen the early stages of the UK doing what some of these other countries are doing. Very high inflation. And I, I don't know what that means for me. And I don't know what to do anymore. I genuinely don't know where to put my money. It's instability, right? We see it everywhere. And that's what the monetary system is supposed to prevent. We're supposed to have a stable a commercial system that, again, we don't think much about money. And we didn't think much about money in the pre-crisis era. Unfortunately, that came back to bite us in the ass because we should have been thinking about money a little bit more, at least how it worked. But that's really the issue here. It's stability versus instability. And notice the other thing is, I think this is what gets people involved and interested in the monetary conversation, is they can feel the instability. And they can feel it in a way that, wait a minute, Ben Bernanke said QE nine years ago, 10 years ago. That was supposed to fix all our problems, but yet we keep having more and more problems. We keep seeing, as you're, as you're saying, countries, Sri Lanka, Lebanon, uh, all these monetary financial problems all around, they seem to be proliferating. They're getting worse, not better. So we can feel that there's an issue here. It's, well, we don't know what it is. It's something's wrong, but nobody can tell what it is. So it's, we know it's money, we know it's finance, we know there's something wrong with the economy. We have no freaking clue what it is. 
What do you think of Bernanke getting a Nobel Prize? Oh my God. What the I fuck said, is that all about? Uh, we need to burn economics to the ground. We need to start again. Because, I mean, look, the guy said so, his biggest sin was not saying subprime was contained. His biggest sin was not realizing it wasn't subprime to begin with. And what he's got a Nobel Prize for, along with a couple other people, was essentially saying, after the fact, years later, oh, by the way, this situation was far more complicated than I told you when it was happening. And they rewarded the guy with a Nobel Prize for that. Yeah, it seems like he found a, a cut and put a sticking plaster over it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And got an award. Yeah, the highest award that an economist can get. I think, you know, again, it go to our conversation. For most of the people in the world who are feeling this instability, it's a slap in the face, right? Because where did that instability at least begin that people, you know, can start to, to feel it? Under his watch. And now he's being rewarded for having the worst monetary crisis since the Great Depression. That's <laughs> lack of accountability, right? And that's money is another, another tool that, that uh, instills accountability when done right. And we have the exact opposite. Oh, man, it's crazy times. Um, so just going back to what you said, uh, and we will cover some of the ground we covered last time. We have new listeners. And if they haven't listened to the previous show, we'll put it in the show notes. Go and listen. It was an absolute banger. And, uh, but I do want to cover some things again. It's, do you still believe we don't know what money is? Yes. Or do you, or, or do you know what it is, nope. but the world, isn't, the world isn't using money in the right way or treating it in the right way? Uh, it's, I think the issue is more along the lines of nobody knows what money is because it's basically an open-ended architecture. We have a bank-centered system. That's what the euro dollar actually means. There's no physical cash. There's no, there's no Federal Reserve notes uh, being circulated around the world in pallets. Um, it's simply how banks talk to each other. And the way banks talk to each other is different all the time, and it's constantly evolving. So you look at the euro dollar system 20 years ago, it doesn't look like anything like it does today. Today, it's almost entirely derivatives, currency swaps. Now, how do we look at a currency swap in terms of a monetary format? Well, it works as money, but yet it doesn't go on a balance sheet anywhere. Well, it does. I mean, it goes in the footnotes, but it doesn't get accounted for in the same way as a, as a specific monetary unit would. So we have no idea really what banks are doing because they don't tell us. Governments don't force, us, force them to tell us. And they could be doing any number of things. They could be engineering all sorts of financial products that we don't know about. So actually defining money in the modern system is literally impossible. And that's really, again, instability. Where, where would that come from? I mean, it comes from the fact that we can't even define, let alone measure, let alone monitor and control and regulate a monetary system nobody really understands. You know, it's making me think of, you know that film we watched, Eddie, that Matt Walsh one, What is a Woman? Mm -hmm. yeah, have you what seen this money? No. Yeah, what is money? Ask people yeah. what is money. Yeah. And see what they, see and what they, they, what they is. do is they get a, a $5 bill, right? And say, this piece of paper is money. And the thing is, nobody, it, in any major industrial economy, hand-to-hand -hand currency died out over a century ago. We've been using virtual currency for over a century. When you write a check, what happens? It goes into the banking system and a bunch of book entries happen. That's very different than what, we're, what we conceive of when we think about using hand-to-hand -hand currency. And in the Eurodollar system, it began in the 1950s so that it didn't have to use hand-to-hand -hand currency. It's a reserveless ledger money system. So defining money becomes literally impossible. And that's really my central contention against Ben Bernanke was that it was his job, at least the Federal Reserve's job and his predecessor's job, to be on top of this evolution, but they get, they threw up their hands in the 1970s and said, 
We don't know how to define this stuff, so we're not going to bother. We're going to target an interest rate because we cannot define and control the money supply, which means that you're not a central bank. You're just trying to manipulate psychology. It's a very different form of monetary policy. It's non-money monetary policy because the, the original problem is we don't know what money is in the banking system. So if you were going to you know, do the Jeff Snyder school of money and what it should be, where would you start? If you had to rebuild this whole system, where would you start? I think it's, it's you start with transparency. It has to be a regime. You know, part of the, the reason the euro dollar expanded and grew as much as it did was because it was user friendly. Now, user-friendly in that case was the banking system, large corporations, sometimes you know, large financial firms and, and governments around the world. So it was user-friendly because it allowed each of these participants to do what they needed to do, which is money's, you know, that's the real secret of money in the modern, in modern, the modern economy, is that it unlocks these, the potential for, again, commerce to do what commerce needs to do. So a ideal monetary system would be both transparent and user-friendly, which again, gets you into the digital currency space because that's exactly where everybody's going in that direction for a reason, because I think it's innate human nature to want money to be what money's supposed to be, a transparent tool that allows commerce to happen. It's not wealth. It's not the goal in and of itself. It's a tool that, you know, it's a modern tool that we use to help make an efficient, sustainable economic system go. Well, I think the reason we like Bitcoin, a lot of Bitcoiners like Bitcoin is, that is a rules-based system. Yes. It's a ledger with a Transparent. Rules. It's transparent. Absolutely. A rules-based system whereby nobody can have undue influence over it uh, and, and nobody can go and create winners and losers. The winners and losers have to create themselves because everybody knows the rules. It's a bottom-up approach. So I think that's why we like it and that's why we like this transition to Bitcoin. I know you're not there <laughs> fully. No, Bitcoin is, it's not the, it's digital. I love the digital potential. I love blockchain, the transparency, the fact you say it's rules-based, right? And we all know what the rules are. And in most instances, nobody can start changing the rules willy-nilly, arbitrarily, right? That's that's the other thing is we, we agree to the terms up front and then we don't need to continuously monitor or continuously argue about what are the terms of money all the time. And that's it, 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 that's what money should be. Like if you're using a, you know, the classical gold standard where we have gold coins in our pocket, we don't have to haggle over the terms of the gold coin. We just haggle over the price. And if we're not haggling over the terms of the gold coin, we can do a lot more than we don't have to waste our time on the monetary system. Right. So that's, again, ideal money is transparent, rules based. Everybody knows up front. It's we don't need to change our terms all the time to benefit others and not some people, not others. It's it's really Money should be really simple. Were you a fan of the gold standard? In some ways. What, I have the same argument against the gold that I would against Bitcoin. Talk, talk to me about that. Because a lot of people, especially one of the uh, guys who works on our show, Ben Prettis, he has his website, What the Fuck Happened in 1971. He talks about coming off the gold standard and he shows a number of charts. Did we get that up in the last show? No, I'll get it up now. Let's show you this, this website. This, for me, was something that indicated that even though the gold standard wasn't perfect, I understand it has criticisms, there has been a significant change in a number of things since 1971. Here we go. I don't think we got it up in the last show anyway. No. So growth in, that's a great chart. Growth in productivity, growth in compensation. 
know, real world GDP wages and trade policy. Like everything went skewy from 1971. So even if the gold standard was not 1971, though, that's that's a little bit of a that's a little bit of a misleading thing, and it's not because of money printing. What, what, why, why is it misleading? Because the UK first all, came off first? No, no, no. The, the, the euro dollar replaced Bretton Woods long before 1971. Euro dollar was undertaking the roles that Bretton Woods was supposed to be doing from the late 1950s forward. So there was already a, con- a transformation before we ever got to August 19. 19- August 1971, Nixon closing the gold winner was a ceremonial effort. It nothing else. And then all those charts you see, that was the effect of the euro dollar on globalization. Not money printing in the U.S., that was the ability, especially the wage charts, that was the ability for companies to then unlock untapped labor pools all over the world. And the reason they were able to do that was because now you had a global reserve currency that was available in many places. So a company that used to be, uh, it's too expensive, it, we, we don't have enough money. I mean, we can't, Chinese yuan, we can't use Chinese yuan, but we can intermediate through dollars because now we have this global dollar regime, which means we can pay for resources, we can pay for labor, we can pay for foreign direct investment all in one big hole. So 1971 isn't about the closing of the gold window. It's about when the corporate America and corporations around the world who had been using the Eurodollar system for 15 years by that point started to really unlock all of these secrets. And really, in one respect, I know I know what that means. It was it was positive. When you look at it from, and I grew up in the Rust Belt, so I know, I know the downside to globalization here. I lived it. Um, but for vast majority of the populations around the world, the euro dollar uh, led to tremendous amounts of prosperity all over the place. Look at China's transformation. Look at Asia's transformation. That would not have been possible without this global currency system. So it feels like the, the dollar was a detriment to the manufacturing base in the U.S. and maybe more blue-collar workers, whereas it really raised up the living standards and opportunity in the rest of the world. That was just because we had labor, uh, labor and wages that had gotten so far out of balance with the rest of the world because you have basically subsistence wage uh, populations all over the place that if you're running a company, I mean, it makes perfect sense why you would do that. Now, again, we've seen these economic transformations all throughout history when we transformed from a, an agrarian society to an industrial society. A lot of agrarian workers were thrown out of work. They had no place to go. So they migrated into the factories where new jobs were awaiting for them. The problem with the Eurodollar system is that we didn't have the other half of that transformation. So as blue-collar jobs were moved, shipped off to Asia, what was waiting for everybody in those blue-collar states? Finance. We had too much, you know, we had, we had uh, you know, a stock market. We had um, residential real estate. Those are not jobs that we can replace uh, blue collar jobs. You, you can't trans. You can't transform from an industrial based society to one based on asset bubbles. Mm. So that was the primary problem. That's what really, in terms of the labor market, came to a head in the in the decade of the two thousands. Is that we eroded the manufacturing base and basically papered it over with too much finance. Do you think there's a risk of doing the same now with the with the dollar so strong? Well, yeah. I mean, why is the dollar strong though? The dollar is strong because there's a shortage of dollars yeah. around the world. There's a massive shortage. of There's so much shortage of dollars around the world. To your first point, it's becoming a problem in London. London mm-hmm. used to be the center of the monetary, economic, and commercial universe. Even in the Eurodollar system, the Eurodollar was primarily based in the city of London. So for the fact that the, you know, these Eurodollar issues, these dollar shortages coming home to London, that's, there's some alarm bells here. 
going See, off. I think there'll be people listening that'll know how much money the US have printed over the last, well, printed uh, over the last few years and be like, <laughs> how the fuck is there a shortage? So can you explain like what that shortage actually means? The shortage actually means that we don't, the Federal Reserve, the federal government don't print money. Money printing, money creation is the responsibility of the banks operating this global monetary system. It's no different than a fractional reserve system. Banks create money through credit creation, except they don't do it in the same ways because there's in the euro dollar system, there is no reserve to fraction. It's essentially balance sheet mechanics. I don't know if, how far you want to get into the details there. We want details. It's essentially based on a lot of mathematics, uh, modeling, VAR, Vega. Um, if you're running a bank, how much credit you create is based on risk perceptions, present value calculations. It's all math. It's all about derivatives. It's all about these kinds of uh, deep financial inputs that allow commercial banks to either expand their balance sheet or force them to contract. And what we've seen since 2000, August 9th of 2007 is banks have been forced to contract. So they're contracting money and they're contracting credit. And they have been pretty much continuously. And when I say contract, let me, let me be specific here. I don't mean shrinking. I mean, growing at a different rate. Okay. We live in a nonlinear world, which means that if we're growing at, say, 10% per year, and all of a sudden you're growing at 5% per year, that's a massive contraction, especially if you spread that out over 15 years. That's a huge, enormous contraction. So it's not like we're actually shrinking the pile of banks, although a lot of banks have gotten smaller. But by and large, the whole overall, the credit system globally used to grow rapidly, and now it's kind of just piddling along. And because it's kind of piddling along, we, had, we don't have enough money around the rest of the world. What happens? Governments try to fill in the gap. How do governments try to fill in that monetary gap? Well, they do what they do, which means they, they, they knock on the door of the central banker and say, hey, isn't this a money issue? And the central banker says, we don't do money, but we'll do something because we have to. And so what have central banks been doing over the last 15 years? Quantitative easing. So people think central banks have been filling the gap with bank reserves when bank reserves don't really have much of a role in the euro dollar system. So you have this persistent dollar shortage that nobody knows about. And this, these governments, the persistent need for central banks and governments to do something about it, which everybody does. It leads to this confusion where we have disinflation or deflationary money globally, but everybody thinks monetary system has exploded. This show is brought to you by BCB Group. Now, BCB Group provide online business banking services for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, I am a customer of BCB too. Now, they heard about the difficulty I had finding a payment service provider that understands Bitcoin and reached out to me. BCB's clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in UK and Europe. And they are now expanding globally. And they have this incredible network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now, listen, I know, like me, a whole bunch of you had trouble with finding banking service providers. So if you're looking for a bank who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you're going to want to become a BCB customer. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Also, today we have my new sponsor, Wasabi, who I am now using to make sure I keep my Bitcoin private. Now, with the release of Wasabi 2.0, Bitcoin privacy is now effortless as a wallet has introduced privacy by default. Rather than having to choose to coin join, this can all be done automatically. So you just need to receive your Bitcoin, wait for the coin join, and then you can spend freely. 
all the magic happens automatically in the background, which is a massive UX improvement. I remember when I used to use the previous Wasabi, you know, it's a little bit tricky trying to understand how to do a coin join. All that's taken away. It's all done automatically for you. You also get additional privacy through Tor integration into Wasabi, so you never leak your IP address. There's also no minimum denomination, so any amount you receive from CoinJoin is totally private. Now, privacy is something I've been taking more seriously recently, and with Wasabi 2.0, this makes it so easy. So if you want to find out more, please do go and check out wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T dot I-O. Next up, it is Gemini, who are also the lead sponsor of my football club, Rail Bedford. Now, I am exclusively using Gemini for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I am only buying... It is a time to buy for me. We're hodlers, right? We're hodling through this. Now, I've been using the Gemini app for buying the dips. They have crushed it with the UX. And with that, I set up my DCA for twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Now, both the app and the website make it really easy for buying and selling Bitcoin. And Gemini has invested in building industry-leading security from day one. And they are running a special offer for listeners of my podcast, What Bitcoin Did, all you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I.com forward slash WBD. Also today, we have my new sponsor, the Texas Blockchain Council. Now on November the 17th and 18th, the Texas Blockchain Council are putting on the Texas Blockchain Summit in Bitcoin country, Austin, Texas. And now this is a two-day event of thought leadership for Bitcoin. Day one is all that any Texas Bitcoin miner could ask for. Top Bitcoin CEOs and their teams will be hanging out in Austin. And day two with top policy leaders from the US, both federal and state legislators, senators, House of Representatives, CFTC commissioners. What more can you ask for? And I'm not just promoting it here on my podcast. I'm going to be heading to the event in Austin. I'm going to be in Vegas with Danny, but I'm going to be catching a flight over to Austin to see my Texas Bitcoin buddies and interviewing a very important person on stage. So make sure you book your ticket and check out this event. Hopefully, I'll see you there. Hopefully, we'll get a chance to hang out. Right. If you want to find out more, please head over to TexasBlockchainSummit.org and use the discount code PeterMC20 for a 20% discount at checkout and let them know that I sent you there. This offer is valid until the end of October, and I hope to see you all down in Austin, Texas. How does a dollar shortage show up? What is the, you know, when you say there's a dollar shortage globally, I'm like, if I need dollars, I can get dollars. What do you mean in terms of the kind of like the mechanics of the economic system? It's the same as anything else. Um, the price of dollars goes up. It's much more inflexible. No, no, I mean, how does the shortage, like when you say there's a shortage, what is the situations where people need dollars and they can't get it? You can still get them, but you have to pay a, 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 a much a higher premium for them. So is, is, that, is that companies needing it for trade because the dollar is the global currency and, and if they want to make certain trade, they need those dollars? Absolutely. Everybody, that's the thing. That's what a global reserve currency is. So, so where do they traditionally get those dollars from and why is there a shortage now? Traditionally, what happens is you have local companies transact with local banks. Yep. The local banks will act in the euro dollar market to secure dollars, usually in short-term funding arrangements. So what happens is you have a you have a maturity mismatch between the local bank borrowing in short-term money markets in the Eurodollar system, but lending in longer-term credit to corporations who have to do things. So for China, for example, you're a Chinese company, you're importing a lot of raw materials, and you're exporting a lot of finished goods. 
So you would think that the Chinese have tons of dollars because they export more than they import, which should be the case. But there's all sorts of stuff that happens in between where the exporters are not the importers anyway. So you're an importer in China. You want to bring raw materials from, say, Brazil or whatever. Um, you have to have dollars to do that because the Brazilians don't want yuan and there's no other reserve currency that, that's uh, it's a flexible in both places. So the Chinese company has to borrow dollars from somewhere. They get them from a local Chinese bank, which is usually one of the big big four behemoths, the, uh, the uh, commercial banks in China. And the, the commercial banks in China, where do they get their dollars from? From the euro dollar system. So they're constantly borrowing largely from banks in Tokyo who also borrow dollars from banks all over the rest of the world. So you have this constant recycling and redistribution of, of money through the banking system that eventually finds its way into some corporate hands. If they're going into the euro dollar system to get dollars and they're borrowing from the banks, do the banks have to have those dollars or does this comes down? So this is, comes down to the rules of how much they can. Right. Make so <laughs> let's, let's say we have two different companies in China. One yeah. is a big company that everybody knows. One's a little bit smaller that nobody does. It's the old argument between the big company and the small mom and pop. So in this instance, what we have is the big company can get all the credit it wants because it's a big company. And in times of risk aversion, where you're a euro dollar bank that usually redistributes or lends euro dollars freely, if you're risk averse, the mathematics, the volatility, all the stuff that goes into your balance sheet says you need to pull back a little bit. Who are you going to lend to? You're going to lend to the big Chinese firm or the big Chinese bank who will lend to the big Chinese firm on much more favorable terms than you will the smaller bank or the smaller firm. So what happens is for the big bank, they can borrow as much, or the big bank or the big company, they can borrow as much as they need to. The smaller and medium-term businesses don't fit the risk profiles of these large banks and the, the Eurodollar businesses, so they're the ones that get deprived of credit. Now, they can still obtain credit. They can still obtain dollar, dollar lending, but it's on much more onerous terms, which means it becomes a drag on, on commercial activity, which is the exact thing that we don't want to have happen for a global reserve. It, it, it's, it's more complicated. This, we're being very stylized here, but essentially that's what happens, which is why you hear governments and central banks around the world constantly complain about credit resource allocation to SMEs, small and medium-sized enterprises. They're the ones who can't get credit because we have a global monetary and credit shortage. So, so as the global economy expands, and if it expands rapidly, does that mean there's a, a need for the dollar to expand rapidly? There needs to be a, ma a dynamic match between supply and demand. Right. And that's, that's really where traditionally the gold standard goes off the rails is because under a constrained system, what happens is human beings, human ingenuity will find other ways around that monetary restraint, which usually leads to all sorts of quasi-money that becomes bubbly gets overdone, right. and you lead to this boom-bust cycle. Okay, so in the current scenario, there is a shortage of dollars, and that is down because the European banks, well, sorry, so the banks outside, sorry, I say European, the banks outside of the US, what, they, they don't have enough dollars to lend? They don't have enough balance sheet capacity to create the money and credit that the global economy needs. So we have... How do they create more balance sheet capacity? Again, it's the mathematics. It's capital, it's capital ratios. It's balance sheet metrics. It's all this internal black box stuff that we have no idea what goes on. So, so, so we, we, have to, we have to sort of look at the whole because we can't observe what banks are actually doing. We don't know what banks are doing on any given day, but we kind of, financial markets tell us 
basically what's happening because we can kind of tell what's going on. But does each bank set its own rules? Yes. So so it's because these banks have created their own set of rules. And there's, Okay, I get it. Right. So it says to me that ideally these banks would be taken on more risk. Yes. That's, that was the inherent problem, though. The uh, pre-crisis system required banks to do a lot of stupid stuff. In order to create enough credit and money, you actually create too much credit and money in the pre-crisis era. And in the post-crisis era, and seeing what happened, Bear Stearns, AIG, Lehman Brothers, that there's a downside to all that. Because that was a a big belief that, that supported balance sheet expansion, right? Because we had recency bias and all these black box models that said, you can take all the risk you want. The downside is very small, very thin. And then we realized that wasn't true. Now we know that the, the downside is real. In fact, the downside is so real, it, it caused a couple of the, some of the oldest, uh, most well-known names on Wall Street to be, to essentially, you know, get thrown out of business um, and solvent and bankrupt. There is a tremendous downside. The very way balance sheets are run in the post-crisis era is very different from beforehand, not just the mathematics, but even the human processes. You know, if you wanted to expand your, your book, your mandate in a bank before the, the crisis, you basically just went to a boss and said, I have this idea. It's crazy. It's stupid, but we can make money. And the boss would say, go ahead and do it. Any, you could come up with any exotic derivative transaction you wanted to. And you were likely to get approved, which had the effect of your client was happy. Your balance sheet was expanded. Everybody seemed to be making a lot of money. Nowadays, you can't do that. You've got to go through risk committees. You've got to go through different layers of compliance. Banks are run very differently. Their balance sheets are run very differently because obvious reasons. And they don't have the same happen again. And that's not regulation. That's just like, that the regulation risk came along afterwards. Right. So banks already started redoing their balance sheets from the very moment that the system broke down in August of 2007, then accelerated their transformation in March of 2008 when Bear Stearns kind of put the exclamation point on the whole thing. Hmm. But, but the thing is, you know, go back to your original question. The global economy required, it needed uh, monetary and credit resources in order to continue to expand and globalize. But now we have the system where we had a system where that was foolish, but we'd never replaced that with anything. So we have this malfunctioning system that doesn't produce enough credit because banks won't expand their balance sheets. And then to your point, regulations have come along afterwards and made it even more expensive, made it even more difficult to expand your balance sheet. So what do banks have done? Kind of logically, they hold the safest liquid assets. They only lend to the safest, most liquid credits. Everybody else has to go wait in line. But the implication of that is, is, it's well, there's multiple implications, but for the US means a strong pound, which means your, uh, well, I say yours because you're an American and I'm not, uh, your balance of trade changes. Um, but it also has implications on the rest of the world in that, uh, you know, a, a strong dollar is, is, causes deflationary pressures on smaller nations. I mean, I'm repeating something Kathy Wood said to me about half an hour ago rather than just <laughs> <laughs> being super smart. But, but I'm understanding those pressures. And well, what, the, those, what, those pressures are just the other side of the dollar shortage. Yes, but how, how, how do they, what is the ways that this dollar shortage can be dealt with? If, if, the, if the banks outside of the US aren't willing to lend more, does the, does the Fed have to step in here? Do they have to provide the liquidity? How? You tell me. They don't. They can't. That's that's the issue. That's why, you know, you see the Fed constantly evolving its tactics. You know, first it was back in, you know, 2006 and 2007, Mr. Subprime contained said, oh, no big deal. What was the first thing the Fed did? 
They lowered interest rates. Did that help? Of course it did. So then they constantly had to evolve. What came after lower interest rates? There were TAF auctions and overseas, overseas dollar swaps. So that was a tacit admission right then in December of 2007. We have a global dollar problem. Why is the Fed instituting dollar swaps with foreign central banks? So is that swap lines? Yes. And, and is that, so I've heard that described as like QE for other countries. It's, yeah, it's just as worthless and ineffective, yes. But how does it actually work? I've never understood that. The Fed essentially institutes a swap line with a foreign central bank because it has no legal authority to, inst- uh, to, uh, to uh, transact with anybody outside the U.S. boundary except for foreign governments. So what happens is the Fed inst- uh, does a dollar swap with a foreign central bank, say the ECB. So the Fed and the ECB agree on the terms of the swap immediately, which means the Fed gets um, euros on its balance sheet and the uh, ECB gets dollars on its balance sheet based on you know the equal exchange value. Um, right. And then the ECB auctions those dollars to its local banks. Ah, so that would presumably, in their mind, adds liquidity, but it, you don't think it does? It, it only reaches the largest banks. And then mm-hmm. a lot of the banks that, that uh, bid for those overseas dollar swaps. So it's not a European bank at the ECB getting dollars from the ECB. It's usually a foreign subsidiary of a U.S. bank buying dollars at the ECB and then transferring them back to the parent in the U.S. to be redistributed at huge premiums to everybody else. It's essentially a money-making scam that allows the largest banks to get as much liquidity as they want. Balance sheet free doesn't, doesn't affect their balance sheet numbers whatsoever because they can charge huge premiums to everybody else that is short of dollars. So it's, again, it's another one of those things that people say, the Fed is doing this, it's overseas, it must be like QE, it's money printing. When in fact, it's a lot more complicated at the very least. And when you actually see what happens, you can see why it's actually not helpful. So again, back to my point, the Fed constantly has to evolve tactics. Because none of, the, none of the things they do actually work. So after we had the TAF and dollar swaps in December 2007, we had something called the primary dealer credit facility. That didn't do much because then that led to Bear Stearns. Or that came after Bear Stearns. That led to Lehman Brothers and AIG. Then we had a whole bunch of alphabet initialisms come in late 2008. Did those work? We had overseas dollar swaps that went to $600 billion almost during the worst financial panic since the Great Depression. Did they work? They couldn't have. They couldn't have because we had the panic anyway. So the Fed constantly evolves these tactics because it can never solve the, the big issue, which is balance sheet constraint of all these global banks that used to create dollars freely who can no longer do so for various reasons. Okay. I think I, I, <laughs> no, but, but I think I'm starting to get it now is that these banks were able to create – I'm going to call them fictitious dollars. Yes. Uh, lend them out. Well, they're virtual. They're virtual dollars. And right. they lend them out, uh, expand their balance sheet to, to do that. Uh, but now they've got uh, they've got kind of like tighter requirements. They've got you know tighter controls. And because of this, there's now not enough dollars in the system, which is the reason that the, the dollar's so strong. Yeah, everybody has to pay essentially a margin charge so, or a liquidity premium for accessing the dollar system. So the alternatives are that people pay in other currencies, which may or may not It happen. happens, yes. It, it happens. Yes. Uh, they pay a premium on the dollars, which is why everything's getting more expensive. And you see what happens, though. Yeah. It becomes more inefficient. Yeah. So even though it's, it's not like you can directly observe, okay, the dollar system just shut off, it's sort of this hidden shadow drag on economic activity because all the behind the scenes, you can't really see people are having, you know, businesses that used to be, 
able to transact freely at really reasonable terms and predictably, suddenly now they're faced with, am I going to be able to get dollar funding next week or the week after? I have to change around the way I do things. It becomes much more inefficient, which is a drag on commercial activity. Well, when countries like Bangladesh are buying their energy in dollars and the dollar is is increasing and you got no dollars left for anything else. No either. dollars left for everything else. That means this can destroy. So, so, it, so the dollar to be a global reserve currency needs to be highly liquid. It that's what a reserve currency is, and it, you know it, it's something that I don't think many people spend much time thinking about because you know when it works, you shouldn't think about it. But essentially, a reserve currency is not about pricing commodities. It's about having a currency available in enough places around the world and freely available that different parts of the world can transact with one another very seamlessly. But can it be too liquid? And therefore, yes. yes. That's, that was the, the downfall of the euro dollar. It went out of control. So, so how do you maintain the right level of liquidity? Well, I think part of it has to do with knowledge, right? Because, again, getting back to the ideal currency, lack of transparency. Um, what dominated the euro dollar system in the 1990s into the early 2000s was recency bias. Because nobody knew what was going on, it just continued to expand and expand and expand until, and everybody was convinced that, you know, volatility was really low so that you could continue to expand and expand and expand until you couldn't. So it was because nobody really understood what was happening at the time, but also because everybody believed there was no risk to doing any of these things. I mean, it was absolutely absurd. We, we step back and look at it from the position of hindsight. It's absolutely absurd what happened. But at the time, you could understand how it, why, it got, why it got out of control when you're dominating, when you've got the most complicated mathematical models humans have ever created saying that the risk of this, happen, of this going wrong is this, this small. And everybody believes that. It's easy to get out of control. And really, a simple balance sheet example proves the point. I mean, if you're, if you're going to lend and create a billion dollars and your expected loss is, say, 5%, you're, you're okay doing a billion dollars. But if volatility ticks up unexpectedly, what happens if, if your expected loss goes from 5% to 10%? Well, for the same number, for the same value of expected loss, you can only print half the money. So where do you see this going then? Because there is a dollar shortage. It's not improving. The, oh, it's gotten worse. It's I gotten mean, worse. The, 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 you've got countries like India complaining about how bad the dollar situation is. They call it rapid external tightening. Well, it, it, it almost feels like some of these nations are going through a death spiral. Yes. Because the dollar is so strong, therefore that's affecting a number of things in their local economy, which means their governments, like in the UK, are now having to maybe print, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> them to borrow, borrow a lot more money, which is then weakening the pound. And so it's like this death spiral. And it happens, it's happened again. We can see the instability accelerate, right? Because it, it was Beirut. A couple of years ago, that was oh Beirut, the little small. Okay, it's Beirut, no big yeah. deal. Lebanon, yeah, yeah, sorry, Lebanon, and then Sri Lanka, and then maybe you know Turkey, Argentina, yeah. Turkey. We're starting to get a little bigger. Yeah. Now we're talking about India, UK. Yeah, I mean, it's it's expanding for that reason. And you know, one of the things that you can see with the dollar shortage is what happens to the countries on the other side because they can't replace replenish their dollars. That country has to use – what usually happens is – The reserves. The reserves. The, yeah. if, if the uh, local bank that was feeding dollars to the local corporation to do things on the global dollar market, the local bank can't get dollars, it will go to its central bank and say, I can't get dollars. 
And so usually the central bank will say, well, I got to sell some reserve assets to create liquidity to then give to the local banks to try to circumvent or bypass the euro dollar shortage. So that's a primary symptom of the global dollar shortage when you see countries' reserve balances start to go down. You might remember that China, 2014 and 2015, a trillion dollars in reserves just disappeared. They didn't just disappear. That was a global dollar shortage that affected, massively affected emerging markets that ended up in depressions, which they've never recovered from. And so we're cycling through, we go through these dollar issues, these dollar cycles every couple of years because it's never really been fixed. So how do we get over the, how do we get over those previous shortages of the dollar? There was, I mean, before 2008, there weren't any. Okay. So why since 2008 has it become a particular problem? Because it's, again, it, the, the way the banking system Change. used to create right. money has changed. Right. Banks know they can't do the things that they used to do, so they're no longer able to do it, which means that we don't have a replacement for what they used to do. So the only option is therefore the banks to go back to the way they did it before? Or to do something different. Or, but what is the difference? That's, 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 but, that's what everybody is wrestling with. So could Even the, if they don't know what they're, they're, they're trying to answer that question, that is really the question. But the end of the dollar as a global reserve isn't an ideal scenario. That would cause calamity. Well, we're already, we're, yeah. we've experienced a lot of that over the last 15 years. Bitcoin, we can save that discussion for later. Is there no way for, no way for the Fed, the US government, to inject or make available more dollars? I don't think, and that I mean that's open. That's an open. Could they not, in my could, opinion, no. Could they not create their own bank? Sure, they already have. I mean, they don't need to. The Federal Reserve System is essentially a bank. So why can't they just create dollars and put them into the? They did that once. When? A couple of years ago, twenty twenty. Okay, so why can't they keep doing that? <laughs> and should should they do that? They they they're they're legally prevented from doing that again because that wasn't really the Federal Reserve; that was the Treasury Department. Right. So that means you need congressional mandate. You need you need laws. You need all that all that legal mumbo jumbo to. But they managed to, to do it before. They did under under extreme circumstances. Is this not extreme? No, I don't think people. Again, this is part of the problem because. If you ask the, per, the typical politician in Congress, are we experiencing a dollar shortage today that needs a new law that gives the Treasury unlimited ability to create cash? What are they going to say? They'll say, no, what are you talking about? This is nuts. Do you and think they should do that, though? No, God, no. The, less the, the more the government does, the worse it gets. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that should be the primary lesson that most people I, they intuitively yeah. realize that anyway. The more the governments do, the more they're going to mess things up. Are You're the, a Bitcoiner. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> are the, um, are the, are the banks in Europe incentivized? Like, does it become a time where they actually will have to change their rules because this dollar shortage will directly impact them or does it benefit them? Um, there's always winners and losers. Yeah. And unfortunately, if there's more losers than there used to be, even the winners are a little bit nervous. That's right. really what happens, right? Because, because it can collapse on yeah, them. Yeah, you know, am I next? I don't think I am, but you know, I don't trust the numbers I used to have either. You know, these, these black box models I used to have beforehand, I used to think were gospel. I'm not so sure. The tolerances get wider, the margins get slimmer, and it's just, you just, it's, it's, it's natural. It's, it's even prudent why, you, why you, you, know, you see these banks pull back because it's, it's not as definitive as it used to be. It's not as certain as it used to be. And you see all these examples. Bear Stearns, they were not a subprime mortgage peddler, and yet they, were, they, were, they, lost, they lost their business. I could be next. You really, 
it's understandable why banks are balance sheet constrained in one sense, because forget the Fed. The Fed, hasn't, Fed didn't save anybody. You could be the next Bear Stearns or Credit Suisse. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, talk about that as well. That's what I'm saying. You keep seeing these continual problems. Why do we keep seeing them? It's because the system is broken and it has not been fixed. And because the system is broken, that's also why you see central banks and governments continuously respond. Why is Japan on the 26th QE? <laughs> because they don't fix the problem. Yeah, I saw somebody I saw somebody mentioning this the other day saying, uh, Japan, the yen always looks like a good short. Yeah. <laughs> but it never is. Until it is. Until it is. Right. And you won't know and it will collapse. Okay, the thing I don't understand, we talked about this in the last show, and I still don't understand this. A bank can choose to lend somebody money and they can just create that money. And they lend that, and that goes maybe to another bank. Right. And at some point, these banks settle with each other. But there's no physical thing. Whereas I have money in a bank, okay, but I also have a house. That is a physical thing. Right. If I sell that house to Danny, he takes that physical thing. Or a car, even Bitcoin. It's a bare instrument. I know I have that Bitcoin, right? I know I can go to the bank and withdraw cash. Right. And I feel like I have a physical thing. But all these banks, it feels Peter. like everything is everything is backed by faith. Fuck all. Yeah, yeah faith. Fuck all. There's no, that's, nothing that's, backing that's all That's every this. monetary system in human history. It's always backed by... What has Not happened Bitcoin, is... Bitcoin's back, Bitcoin, Bitcoin <laughs> is backed say by that. math. Math is fallible. Um, when you write a check, what happens? No cash is moved. No. It's a book entry. Yeah, it's a promise. So... That's how the system works. It's all about book entries. So if it's you writing a check to pay for groceries, if it's you using a debit card to pay for groceries, it's no different if you use a credit card. What happens with a credit card is a different set of book entries happen where the bank doesn't, doesn't create a deposit for you. It goes to an SIV and creates a deposit there where the SIV owns the paper or the cash flow streams from the credit card that you just used. But it's all just book entries. So the, all the banks really do are blockchain transactions. They just keep track of who owes what to whom. That's all it is. And we've privileged these banks because we have in our mind this idea that they have cash in a vault. When they don't. I mean, some of them do, but they don't. They don't really. But this, this is the point. So it's like, uh, if I want to transact with Danny with Bitcoin, when I send him that Bitcoin, I know if I've sent him a percentage of the 21 million. I know he's got a percentage of that. Right. And if he sends back to me, it's a percentage of that 21 million. And I'm comfortable with that. And I know if I think of my, the value of my assets and money, I'm comfortable with the va value of my house because there's bricks, there's land that is mine. And when that mortgage is paid off, whatever happens, that is mine. My money in the bank, I am starting to think, I think I need to buy some shit with that because, <laughs> because but no, it's, it works it's the same way though. Yeah. But if that, if, if you believe the bank is a, is a dispassionate, um, objective arbiter of monetary transaction, it's the same exact thing. Because what happens is you, you write me a check for $5 and it's drawn on the bank. There's no cash that's moved. I now have that $5 according to the bank. It's only because the bank says I have that $5 and you transferred it to me. So now I can use the $5 and I'm not going to actually get cash out of the bank. I'm going to write another check to Dan or you know whoever else. And the bank says, you own this $5, so therefore you can transact in that medium of exchange. I think what I'm trying to get to is that the value of the stuff, the physical things I hold 
is based on an illusion. No, no, no. The physical things, like the house, it's is still based, based on an illusion. Well, no, but but yes, but it's still there's physical things there, and the Bitcoin is valued based on a potential twenty one million. It feels like the money I have in the bank is its value is derived from the aggregate risk management of ba- banks. Yes, and they do a horrible job. Yeah, and. By the time you feel, now you're getting <laughs> yes, yeah. now you're seeing the problem. By the time yes. you realize they fucked, well, I say the aggregate value of the uh, risk management of the banks and the success of uh, central banks' monetary policy or the government. Because, for example, I know my pounds are worth less because the UK government fucked up. So it's, it's the banks and the government. Well, the UK is experiencing a problem that India is experiencing. Their original problem is that the Eurodollar system is looking at Britain in the same way it's looking at uh, Sri Lanka. That because the UK government has screwed up, because the situation in, in Britain, no longer part of Europe, for, good, for ill or worse, you know, I'm not going to get into that, but because they're not part of the European system, they never really integrated fully, but at least they were considered that way. Britain is now looked at as an extremely weak credit. And in a risk-averse environment, what happens to the extremely weak credits? They're deprived of monetary and credit resources. As the, as the Reserve Bank of India said just a couple months ago, what you see is massive gross financial instability, which is exactly what's happened in the UK. So it's a response to the original dollar problem, which only makes it worse because the UK government's response to the dollar issue is to make the dollar system look at UK even more, uh, even more risk averse. So it's, it becomes a self-reinforcing spiral with there's really no way to get out of it. So you think the pound is going to continue to drop against the dollar? Yes. How, how low can it go? Because there's almost like that the dollar-pound parity feels like something to defend. <laughs> Once we say it, like we will defend that with our might. Yeah, but the thing is, the more that central banks try to defend a arbitrary line in the sand, the more likely it is to fail. You saw that with India. India actually uh, put a soft floor under the rupee at 80. It lasted for maybe six weeks. Now right. it's 82 and falling. So h- how low do you think the pound could drop? No idea. It depends on how long these things go. See, what I've made a decision to do is uh, there is there is a scenario where it is the bottom and you know, the pound has dropped this low before and, and come back. There is that scenario and there's a scenario where it falls further. I'm essentially hedging by holding see, that's, both. That's, that gets back to our original problem. Thinking about money. We shouldn't be. You have to worry about, am I going to, you know, if I leave all my assets in the pound, am I going to be wiped out? That's the last thing that should happen in a monetary system. Yep. It's the worst case. Because now you're not thinking, I can't go out and do this. I need to expand my business. I need to do this or that. I can't even think about that because I don't even know if I'm going to have cash that's worth anything in a week or two weeks or a month. It doesn't matter. The fact that you're even thinking about that seriously is an incredible uh, impediment on the commercial system, a incredible imposition on the commercial system that is a drag upon economic growth and sustainable uh, systems. But I don't want to do the opposite. I don't want to keep all my, although I wish I'd done this from the start of the year, but I don't want to keep all my money in the dollars in case somebody does something else and suddenly the pound massively rises against the dollar and I'm, you know, if it went 25% up, I'd lose 25% of my money. It's like, the fuck do I do here? You wait for everything to clear up. Why do I, buy well, Bitcoin, I guess, right? Buy Bitcoin. <laughs> well, I've done enough of that. I, I think we just. But buy. see, that's you know that's the other issue. That cryptocurrencies, digital currencies. Why have they experienced the Bitcoin winter or the crypto winter over the last uh, last year too? Well, there's multiple reasons for that. Uh, it, <laughs> the, they tend to go in cycles, and it very much went in the cycle. But there are other signals that it was a response to cheap credit and the tightening 
Yeah, the Fed okay. tells us what to do. Fed tells us what to do. Risk on, risk off. See, I would look at it the other um, way. The cycles are dollar cycles. 2017 and 2018 was a deflationary cycle in the euro dollar. Right. Mm. So we had the same thing, 21 into 22. Deflationary cycle in the euro dollar. So, so what's going to happen in 23, 24? Should well, we buy Bitcoin? The bottom. That's the bottom. And we don't know what the bottom looks like just yet. But you think it's going to get worse? Oh, that's what, I mean, all the, again, I like to think of the year because we can't directly observe what these banks are doing. The euro dollar system as a whole is a, is a black hole. And you can't directly observe a black hole, but you can tell what's going on in the black hole by how things are moving around it, right? You know, how a star is orbiting around the black hole tells you something about the size of the black hole, you know, how far, how fast the star orbits, all that stuff. So we look at financial markets, we look at money market, look at the dollar's exchange value. All these things tell us what is actually going on in the euro dollar, even if we can't directly observe it. And these things are not looking very good at all. We're talking about 2007 levels of inversion in treasury and euro dollar futures. Obviously, the dollar's exchange value is wrecking people everywhere around the world. So I'm not incredibly optimistic about this year into next year. Is it, is it worse? Is this a, a particularly worse scenario? Or do you think it's just similar to 2007, 2008? Oh, I, I don't want to make any direct comparison. Right. I'm just saying that the last time we were confronted, last time the markets told us that the monetary system was confronting this level of concern and uncertainty was in 2007. We're not going to have another 2008. That will never repeat. We'll have, but we, that doesn't mean we can't go through some really bad periods here because we're already seeing that happen around the world many times. This show is brought to you by the Pacific Bitcoin Conference hosted by Swan Bitcoin on November the 10th and 11th this year in sunny Los Angeles. Now, I've known the team over at Swan for ages, Corey, Jan, Brady, and they're pulling out all the stops to make Pacific Bitcoin a celebration of the Bitcoin community. And I cannot wait to get out there. I do love LA. I will be emceeing the conference along with my good friend, Natalie Brunel and Stefan Navera. And there's going to be an incredible lineup of speakers. You know these people, Lynn Alden, Alice Gladstein and Preston Pish. It's going to be great. Now, Pacific Bitcoin is going to be the right mix of education and fun with some unique experiences. They've got a surfing simulator and they've loaded the conference with parties before and after the event. They're bringing together the brightest minds in Bitcoin to discuss a range of topics from macro to nation state adoption, mining to lightning. Now, you do not want to miss the inaugural Pacific Bitcoin Conference. I know it's going to be a special event. As I said, I cannot wait to get out there. I do love LA. Now, Swan are offering a huge 30% discount to listeners of the show. Just go to pacificbitcoin.com and use the code PETER at checkout. That is P-A-C-I-F-I-C-B-I-T-C-O-I-N.com, pacificbitcoin.com, and use the code PETER. Also, today we have BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino. It is trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide. And not only do they have cutting-edge security, but they also offer fast withdrawals and some amazing VIP experiences that money can't buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against each other and 24-7 live chat support, BitCasino is the best Bitcoin casino out there. Now, if you want to find out more about BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award, head over to bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. And please remember to gamble responsibly. Also, today we have Ledger. Now, recent events this year have highlighted just how important self-custody is. And Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. And the world's most popular hardware wallet just got better. Ledger recently announced the launch of the new Nano S Plus, And the larger screen makes it easier to manage and verify your Bitcoin transactions. 
the Nano S Plus maintains the same high level of security of all Ledger products. And listen, I have been using Ledger products since 2017. Five years is crazy, right? And absolutely love everything they've done. They are my favorite wallet provider and they have absolutely crushed it this year. Now, if you do want to find out more, if you want to purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot dot com. Also, today we have Ledin from savings and accounts to personal loans and even mortgages. Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of their holdings today without selling their Bitcoin. Now, with recent events in the lending industry, Ledin demonstrated that their robust risk management strategy was the right approach, and they are building out one of the best financial service providers in Bitcoin. Now, they don't actively trade or invest in DeFi yield generation nonsense and have experienced zero losses as a result of their strategy. They only support Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they will re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. Not only are they a sponsor, I am also a customer of theirs now. I love the service, love what they're doing, love the team, and pleased to be working with them. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N dot I-O. All right, you don't want to make any predictions. No, never make predictions. How are you preparing? How are you preparing is understanding what's going on, listening to the financial system. No, no, how are you preparing? How am I preparing? Yeah, how are you preparing? I'm being as safe and as risk averse as I possibly can. So what is safe and risk averse right now? It can be any number of things. And I, I, I don't want to give out investment advice. I don't want to do any, get into any of that stuff. Is the one indicator that would be contrary to that, the unemployment rate? No, because that's a lagging indicator. And it's also faulty because it doesn't take into account, in the U.S., the participation problem. What does that mean? Um, fewer people have come back to the labor force since 2020 or 2020. Um, so the employment rate doesn't take into account all the people who didn't come back. We're just sort of supposed to ignore them. Oh, I see. Uh, the participation problem is a deflationary problem that John Maynard Keynes identified a century ago. Um, but we've, it happened starting in 20, uh, 20, 2009, 2010, and we just ignored it. So we have fewer people working, but the unemployment goes down because we don't ignore all the fewer people who don't work. Why? Nobody knows. Nobody seems to know. Economists have said, well, Americans are lazy. They won't go back to school and learn new jobs. They're drug addicted. Any number of excuses that basically blames workers for what is a macro issue. What do you think the reason for that is? It's again, like we talked about this. Commerce is spending too much time worrying about money. Mm. And so it's a drag in economic growth. Globalization, more inefficient economic systems means there's less opportunity to create um, sustainable enterprise that that leads to employment. So I think the... The average American worker who's out of the labor force knows more about what's going on in the economy than every central banker and economist there is. They can feel the fact that there is no jobs available because companies are struggling with all of these issues. Well, people care now and they want to know. Yes. I mean, we see it with our numbers. We, we, uh, you know, our podcast numbers are essentially a derivative of the Bitcoin price. When the price goes up, (laughs) our downloads shoot up and we get a whole, we get a new base. But when it drops, it drops. We put out a show today with Lynn Alden talking about the crisis in Europe, straight line up. People want to know, people, yeah. have, people because they want to protect themselves. 
because I know they've been fucked by the central banks. They, they also know, know they're being lied to. Yeah, of course. That's the issue. I think that's, I mean, again, it goes back to what we really, it's instability. You can feel the instability, but you got Jay Powell on the TV saying, no worries. I got this covered. I'm going to rate, I'm going to hike rates and the economy is going to be just fine. There'll be a soft landing. We're all good. And everybody knows that's bullshit, well, right? they bullshit about transitory. It's, the Fed, it, you have to understand what the Fed says in public is not what it says in private. You look at some of the academic studies, the literature, they know they have no idea what they're doing, but their job requires them to tell the public that they do. That's what really, again, you know, the euro dollar system put the Fed out of the money business. So what has the Fed been doing for the last 50 years? It's been in the business of convincing people that it's in the money business when it's not. <laughs> but that requires putting on this facade that says, I know everything that's going on. But then you read the academic studies in the literature that says, we have a fucking clue what we're doing here. <laughs> do you think, do you, think uh, do you support the idea of end the Fed? And do you think uh, yeah. the economy can operate without a central bank? We, the U.S. economy's best growth period was with, before the Federal Reserve was instituted. Really? Yeah, I before no, 1913. Tell me about that because I know nothing The late about 19th that. century? Absolutely. I mean, boom-bust cycles left and right. You can understand why the original Fed came about was because the private banking system did a relatively decent to lousy job at, at times of liquidity and elasticity. And so people said, let's, let's create a public utility so we don't have to depend on the Chicago clearinghouse to create clearinghouse debt certificates whenever there's a monetary crisis. Let's have a public utility that has the mandate to create elasticity during crisis so we don't go through these boom-bust cycles. And it was a total disaster <laughs> because within two decades, we had the Great Depression, the worst of the worst case. So the idea that the, that the Fed could or the government could create a perfect elasticity machine to make sure the monetary system was in working order through the ups and downs of the boom-bust cycle was total hubris. So we better off just accepting boom-bust cycles. I don't think we need to accept them in the most extreme cases. I think we need to accept the fact that there are boom-bust cycles because human beings are human beings. Yeah. And so we cannot perfect humanity. How are we going to perfect a complex human interrelationship? I think the idea is more along the lines to make sure it doesn't get too far out of tolerances in either direction. We don't want to be too constrictive. We also don't want to be too tolerant. Okay, if you support the idea of ending the Fed, do you think it could ever realistically happen? Yes. You do? Absolutely. Because of public response or political will? Just what you said. Public People are interested in the topic in a way, trust me, I've been doing this a long time. And when I first started, no nobody cared. Yeah. Who are you? What are you talking about? Eurodollar, banks? That, no, we don't care. The J, Alan Greenspan's is maestro. Right. And now it's things have really changed. Uh, it, it just needs to get to a critical mass where people who are asking questions get connected with the ideas that answer those questions. Uh, do we know of any politicians who particularly stand for ending the Fed? I'm sure there are some, but I don't know. Probably Ron Paul. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Ron Paul probably. He was all at the Fed, wasn't he, at least? Yeah. yeah that's, I mean, what good is that going to do? We know what the, I mean, the Fed is is really transparent auditing the fed i mean there's no hidden secrets there <laughs> it's really the fed is doesn't do the job that it was designed to do mm. and that was because they they can't they literally cannot do that job anymore because of the monetary and banking evolution a long time ago mm. jesus <sighs> i don't know what to do Danny. <laughs> <laughs> um okay so it's it is a particularly difficult time for people in the uk it is particularly difficult as well because we also have this uh, energy crisis which is really 
really causing a lot of people a lot of business a lot of problems for a lot of businesses uh, i'm particularly worried that the uk economy could go into a specific and deep crash um how, how you don't want to do predictions <laughs> uh, no but we can talk about probability yeah probabilities like what are what are the probabilities of certain scenarios then? well look i mean Again, look, what the financial market is saying is the probabilities of downside cases have accelerated. Yes. That's what's accelerated, not consumer prices. Downside cases have accelerated. I mean, for the first time in September, the German curve inverted. Never happened before. What does that tell you? We have an unprecedented German curve inversion. That means that the financial system, the monetary system, in that particular focus on that particular part of Europe is saying the downside case is something we've never, we've never confronted before. To the point that I would rather own a 30-year German bond than even a 10-year or a five-year. That's a mean, that's a that's an extreme downside case. A probability where what we used to call tail risk is not so tail. It's not such a tail anymore. What 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 is the reason to own different length bonds then? Because I, I don't know anything about bond trading, never bought a bond, never traded a bond. Why why is a 30-year bond indica- uh, indicative of that? Well, because it, you're locking up your money? No, it's it's about that's part of it. You're locking in returns because you think, well, interest rates just in very generally broadly speaking, interest rates are going to go lower through time. So, so the you probability, want to lock in interest yeah. So yeah. and it's also about liquidity factors involved too. But primarily, when you see curve inversion, what you're saying is, I want to own a ten year because I think over the next couple of years, interest rates are going to go down to the point that owning the ten year is going to be a tremendously prof- profitable position. So the yield, the yield curve in the U.S. is heavily inverted where the 10-year is 40, sometimes 50 basis points below the two-year, which means that the Fed is pressuring the front end of the curve through its rate hikes, and the market is waiting for the rates rates to go down, just waiting for that moment for the Fed to realize that it has screwed up so badly that it has to not just stop cut, stop hiking rates, it has to actually aggressively cut them. And so various, not just treasuries, Eurodollar futures are all waiting for the moment Jay Powell gets on, t- on TV and says, oops, that's it's basically priced into all of these markets. And so what the question is, sorry, yeah, what makes what is the market waiting? What is the oops? What is the moment there where, where Jay Powell has to say, I, I throw in the towel and I gotta start cutting rates? And in this environment, it can't be anything good. It really can't be. So do you think rates are gonna be cut again? Yeah, I think the markets are markets have been absolutely sure about that. And they've been pricing this for quite a long time. And we continue to keep moving in that same direction. The euro dollar, the euro dollar, euro dollar curve inverted the first time last December, and as the curve, you know, the initial inversion last December, everybody was talking about an economy that was red hot, inflation mm-hmm. was going to be forever, secular inflation, all that. But inflation's time, dropping now. What's that? Inflation's dropping now. Yeah, so in some places, it maybe it's not as fast as most people would like. But what my point was that when it first inverted in December, nobody was thinking that what we're seeing now is actually going to happen. The market has been ahead of events all the time. And if it's pricing next year or later this year, continue, you know, continuing on the same path, eventually you get to that oops moment for Jay Powell. Kathy Wood kind of agreed with Jeff, really, that the, the, the supply shock component of inflation totally. has not been really considered. This is something you talked about. Other people disagree with you on. But oh, we brought out that chart. Absolutely. We saw it post-World War II and we saw it post-COVID. Um, we've also had got a supply shock in the energy markets in Europe. Um, which have been driving it's an inflation. attractable one too. That's that's. I mean, that's again. You get to the, the cross currents. You get the ECB is hiking rates. Is that going to bring down oil prices? Why is the ECB hiking rates? Because that's not how the ECB operates. 
what the Fed and the ECB are doing, you think that inflation is a very simple thing. Is there too much money or is there not? Well, the Fed couldn't tell you. The ECB couldn't tell you. So what do they do? They hike rates because they're worried oil prices are going to infect people's minds. You think I'm making this up, but I'm not. They're afraid that what will happen is inflation expectation will unanchor, like using their terminology. So they're hiking rates to manipulate the people, you know, uh, employers, investors, whatever, so that they don't think that high oil prices are going to stick around forever. It's all about psychological manipulation. It's not about actually cutting back on money supply. It's not really even about controlling the economy. It's about psychological manipulation. And so the ECB is focused on oil prices, which are going to go up and stay up for probably for a long period. And the Federal Reserve is focused on the unemployment rate along with oil prices. Meanwhile, at the same time, economies are falling apart rapidly around the world. Central bankers around the world are complaining about rapid external monetary tightening. And they're all looking at this other things. So, so everything you can stopped. see why, no, you can see why market <laughs> curves are inverted. Yeah, yeah, I get it. I get it. The short run interest rates are going to go up. In the long run, they're going to have to come down because the Fed's focused on this. The world is doing this. Well, the high interest rates, again, I can only speak for the UK, but the high interest rates are uh, potentially going to cause a housing crisis as well because um, I've brought this up in a few interviews recently, but 300,000 people a month come off fixed rate interest and go on to variable rates and people cannot afford. Right. The, the the massive jump in rates that we've seen, they cannot afford to pay their mortgages, which means we're going to have a oversupply of houses in the market, which is going to lead to, lead to a fall in uh, housing prices. But also, on top of that, people can't afford the rates for the houses they wanted to buy previously. I mean, I, I think higher interest rates are a good thing, not a sharp increase. Higher interest rates for the right reasons. Yeah. Not because the Fed said so, but because the economy is healing. Yes. If we had an actual rapid economic growth, we would be easily we would easily absorb high interest rates because it wouldn't be all at once. It would be slowly, gradually. And then you would have people who would get better job opportunities, better. You know, there would be more jobs available. So they would be able to afford higher mortgage rates. Yeah. But see, that's not what's happening here. We have an economy that's falling apart and the Fed raising rates or the East, or the uh, Bank of England raising rates for totally illegitimate reasons. So do you think they're going to hike rates before they drop rates? Yes. You do? Yeah. So when do you think rates will drop? It looks like either later this year or early next year. Right. So it's going to be a painful end to the year then. It looks that way. I mean, look at all the the corporate earnings anecdotes that have come around have come out over the last couple of weeks. FedEx was a big one. Everybody yeah. people what are not did, buying shit. Yeah, but what did FedEx say? They said not just global recession, that's what everybody focused on. They said rapid deterioration toward the end of the quarter. So they said things were bad and then they got worse. And then FedEx came out with another warnings warning just a couple of days ago, last week. So it's, it's not, we had the economy sort of fall off a cliff in round March when oil prices spiked. So we kind of started the recessionary process or the recessionary transition around March. But it kind of, you know, when you're in that transition phase, it's ambiguous because the data is, it's not as awful as maybe people fear it's going to be. And so the Fed can say, well, we're just slowing down. And it's hard to argue against that because that's kind of what it looks like. Is there, is there a benefit to crashing the market? Oh, God, no. There's not. No, not really. So they're just fucking idiots. I think the only benefit <laughs> to a crash, if you think, you know, 2008 would have been the perfect time to have this conversation about money. Right. That's when we should have done it. We should have let the system crash so that we could have reset the damn thing. Because 15 years without economic growth is far worse. Just, just ask everybody in Ukraine. Because that's what ends up happening. Um, when you have prolonged periods in history where there's lack of economic growth and widespread uh, widespread across the world, it ends up with conflict. 
not just conflict about art, you know, countries arguing with each other, shooting wars. That's where it comes from. Hot wars. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason why World War II followed the 1930s because <laughs> there's, there's, there's a human cycle at work. Okay. So we're going to throw in a potential world war to this as well. <laughs> Maybe a thermonuclear war. When, um, and again, this stuff, you know, you said, if I, you said this stuff and even in 2009, it sounded crazy. Yeah. It doesn't sound as crazy anymore, does it? Nope. Instability, instability, instability. So we need stability. Yeah. When the Fed eventually pivots and starts dropping rates, do you think they'll also start QE again? Yes. And what, but you, but that you don't think that is going to help anything. The rates no. will help, but that won't. No. I don't no. think the rates will help much either. Because oh, by then it's too far, it's too late. Well, you think we'll just be in full-blown recession? Yeah. You think, do you think we're already in full-blown recession? Yes. You look at some of the, in the U.S., the labor data says that, you know, the recession started in March. I mean, the official recession date will probably be, you know, later in the year. Mm-hmm. Um, but full-time employment, for example, full-time employment peaked in March. And that's you, that's a dead-on recession indicator. Yeah. Full-time employment peaked in, I think it was March of 2007. But in that, that interim period between, you know, early 2007 and when the Great Recession was declared in, at the end of 2007, everybody said, well, it's just a slowdown. It's no big deal. You can't really tell for sure because if you're not paying attention to financial markets, which said, yes, this is recession, you can, well, the labor doctor data just, it doesn't look too bad. You know, the, the economic data, GDP is still positive. It's still 2%. It doesn't look too bad, right? And then all of a sudden it just falls off a cliff and everybody's like, what happened? Well, you ignored all the warning signs. Well, it's not a good thing. Is a recession useful in that it is a reset? It sh- if, it, if it was allowed to be. But our biggest problem here is not that we need to reset the economy. We need to reset the banking system, the monetary system, which doesn't happen. Is so it, we went through, you know, 2020. Maybe that would have been a perfect time to reset everything. How, not the great reset, yeah. obviously, but... How do you reset, though? How, like, literally, how do you? It's, it, it, sounds, it sounds like it's an impossible task. The only way you can reset it is for it to just collapse. And for it to collapse, burn no, to the ground, start again. No? Let's look at the other end of the Eurodollar system. Right. The Eurodollar system, Triffin's paradox. Triffin's paradox was you can't have a national currency tied to an internet or national reserve system tied to an international currency because the world would need more currency than there is national reserves. Right. Which is what happened. But you know, as I said before, August 1971 wasn't the end of, that was the official end of Bretton Woods. But the Eurodollar system developed, nobody knew it happened. So we had this monetary transformation. It got messy toward the end, obviously with the great inflation, but the system didn't crash, even though we had this massive monetary evolution and transformation that took place over two-decade period. So maybe that's cryptocurrencies. Maybe that we're already in the transformation. We don't really even notice it. Well, we're certainly in a transition to Bitcoin, but what its, <laughs> what it, what its role is, is to be decided. Right. I mean... People like me and Jeremy and Danny are in a transition to Bitcoin. We price things in Bitcoin. We consider Bitcoin. I think there'll as, be a lot more people like you. Yeah. So I mean, Bitcoin is my reserve currency. Right. It, it helps me make my decisions about my future spend and you know, how I hold money. But uh, you aren't completely opposed to it. And in the last episode, when you described the perfect currency, you described Bitcoin apart from the elasticity and liquidity. Talk, talk to me about the issue of liquidity that you think exists with Bitcoin. Talk about how that would manifest itself. Well, part of the problem, too, it's just an innate problem with monetary systems is money tends to pool in you know, successful hands, right? If you're successful at what you do, you have a successful business, you're going to end up with more money. And so the issue is always about, is there enough money to, for everybody else? And if there isn't, how do you circulate money that pools? 
And I don't think that Bitcoin has developed, and you know, I don't know Bitcoin is working on, or some people are working on some of these side chain pools and sovereign and some of the other solutions. But I think they're acknowledging that the lack of liquidity in Bitcoin is an issue because it, you know, because it pools and because it doesn't transact um, in wide enough, a wide enough area, it creates these, these deficits, these pockets where um, legitimate uses of money go un, unsupplied because there's no banking system for Bitcoin. There's no financial system. It yeah. doesn't necessarily need to be okay. a bank. I like De- well, DeFi is, is a potentially elegant solution too. Mm, I'm not sure on that, but uh, <laughs> they, well, they, they, I said potential. Potential. So there are peer-to-peer Bitcoin lending solutions. Right. Um, I think uh, Hoddle Hoddle have got a market, haven't mm-hmm. they? Do you want to draw that up? Yeah. So well, that's the th- it's Peter. That's the thing is that any monetary system, no matter what, has to undergo financialization. It has to happen. Yeah. And the more you're resistant to financialization, the more you're going to run into problems. And I think Bitcoin is very resistant to financialization. Not saying that they're not good reasons to be. I think there but are. But I think Bitcoiners. there needs to be a balance there. Yeah, I think there are Bitcoiners who are resistant to financialization because financialization might mean not holding your private keys, which is right. something people worry about. So this is no, and there's there's always legitimate, and it's always you know there's always a tug of tug of war here. There's always a you need to be balanced. Can you on to borrow, Danny? We're on borrow at the moment. Uh, why is what? What's this Ethereum shit? (laughs) Okay, so I want to borrow, let's put in 25,000. And, but I'm borrowing dollars against the Bitcoin. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so in this world, this is a world which is two currencies, which allows you to have your, your your Bitcoin as your reserve and the dollar, I guess, is your um, medium medium of exchange, right? Yeah, and so that scenario, you you mentioned that you'd need both and the idea that you would only have one. If you lent Bitcoin, I guess with that, you'd only be lending out at a rate. Um, and with this, you have the protection because there's an LTV. So you're lending dollars, but you're yeah. holding the Bitcoin. Right. Yeah. Um, so it's, a, it's, it's not a reserve currency. It's a reserve no, asset. Yeah. Mm. It's almost like collateral. Yeah. Which I think is, I mean, that, that could potentially be an elegant solution too. And I also think that, uh, you know, a single currency, that's unusual. Usually there's many currencies that people have a, a variety of choices to use. And I think there's there's value to having that because you have competing currencies, therefore, trying to create the best terms for businesses and users, not the other way around. When you have a, a, a completely opaque system that, that prioritizes or um, uh, gives banks special privileges, they take advantage of those. Mm. Among them, information asymmetry. So competing currencies that are open and transparent give all the benefits to the users. Yeah, I think, Danny, that's one of those things we should be looking at making a show about, the idea that if we did have a single currency, Bitcoin, what would that mean for trade? Mm-hmm. And what would that mean for the liquidity? Because I think when Bitcoiners talk about hyper-Bitcoinization, they haven't spent maybe, not all of them, some maybe have, but haven't spent the time considering how global trade works yeah. and how this works. So that's probably another one for Lynn. Another one for Lynn. <laughs> Poor old Lynn. All right, Jeff, you've left me uh, ultra uh, optimistic and excited for my future. All my (laughs) hard years of work. Usually it's the opposite. (laughs) Might be uh, completely burning down. What do you focus on right now then? I'm focused on what the Eurodollar system is doing. Okay. Uh, But I am, you know, I'm also trying to figure out what what possible solutions there could be. Like I said, I am very optimistic about digital currency. In fact, I'm almost 99% convinced that Within a, a reasonable length of time, 
we will be more digital currencies than not. Not CBDCs, though. Oh, God, that's not a digital currency. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Danny, you got any final questions for Jeff? Uh, I've actually got one from Ben. Here you go. I'm going to pull something up. Um, ben, ben is uh, works on the show. He uh, is our editor and publisher. And uh, our in-house macroeconomist. Yes. So this was from Lynn's uh, latest article. Right. Let me read this out just so people listening can hear. Back in my June 2022 newsletter, I wrote about an upcoming checkmate scenario for central banks where they're forced to print money into a high inflation environment due to a combination of untenably high debt and commodity-driven inflation. Japan has over 250% public to debt GDP. Italy, Italy has over 150%. UK and the USA are both over 100%. The thesis here is that the macroeconomic environment is like the 1940s for them, high debt and high inflation. Not like the 1970s, low debt and high inflation. And their sovereign bond markets therefore require support from central banks to avoid a fiscal and spiral, fiscal spiral and nominal default. This support typically takes the form of yield curve control, yield curve management, and various other types of financial repression. I think we need to get you and Lynn together. I think that'd be fine. I think that'd be really good. So he said, will central banks be forced to print money due to high debt and commodity inflation despite high CPI? And can they even print? Do they have that power? Um, no. And the other issue is that commodity-driven inflation. I mean, what if commodity-driven inflation doesn't continue? I mean, we've already seen commodities come way down mm-hmm. outside of energy. Um, base metals are down, what, 30-some percent since March. That's what Kathy Wood was saying. So I'm not sure that's that's even uh, continu- that's going to be continuing to be a problem. Commodity-driven inflation, we've seen core CPI start to soften a little bit too as businesses are are starting to discount and liquidate some of their inventory. There's still a massive record inventory overhang. In the United States, it's biblical. Mm-hmm. Around the rest of the world, there's still an av- so I don't, you know, I don't think it's going to be in response to commodity-driven inflation or inflation at all. And most of what central banks are doing is in response to energy prices, which are going to be, are, you know, that's a non-economic issue. It's a political issue mostly. Mm-hmm. So that just drives them into one corner when the the overall economy is going in the other direction. So I don't think that leads to yield curve control or any of those types of financial repression. I think it leads to different financial repression. But there's no need to do that, which is why we see inverted curves, because there's demand for sovereign bonds, and obviously not the weaker ones, but there's demand for sovereign bonds once we get through the rate hikes. Once right. the Fed goes, oops, once the ECB goes, oops, watch what happens to interest rates. We already saw it last month when the Bank of England did their guilt operation. They didn't want to call it QE, but it was very similar to QE. What happened to yields? They've they got, immediately dropped but because everybody only- around the world is waiting for the moment when Jay Powell says, oops. But they've almost gone back to where they were before they stepped in. Because that's the nature of markets. You have these fluctuations. Hmm. So if, if, if what happened in late September had been the moment, it, the interest rates would have gone down. But instead it was the, oh, you know, jump the gun kind of a thing. Oh, right. the Bank of England did a QE. Is there going to be another one? Well, I better start buying bonds because I'll wait for the next. Oh, that wasn't the right one. I'm sure they announced that today. Go on to my... I've got this here. So this is the the 30-year guilt yield. If you go on to my Twitter, Danny, I tagged Greg Foss, Lynn, Preston, and Dylan all in a post. The squad. The squad. That's Bitcoin squad. The Bitcoin squad. Last night, I think, about three in the morning when I should have been asleep. (laughs) And I'm thinking about this bullshit. Sorry, I'm struggling to find You were it. tweeting in anticipation of Ben Bernanke's massive uh, career accomplishment achievement. Honestly. It's just, it's enough to make you sick. It's fucking embarrassing. But, you know, it's, it's 
there's no better illustration of the position we're in, right? When you give somebody who uh, was yeah. at the Fed during the worst crisis in the Great Depression, give them yeah, a let me, prize. Let me find it. Oh, I've got it. Oh, you got it. Bank of England says launching temporary expanded collateral repo facility. By the way, I have no idea what that means. That's why I tagged my friends. I should have tagged you as well. You can't taper a posse. I think that's Greg Foss's uh, favorite term. It's basically QE. Well, there's some nuances there, but in, at the end of the day, does it really matter? No, it doesn't matter. Um, great, we're fucked. No, but that's again, that's that's what markets are prepared for. Yeah, this is not the this is the first, not the last. Yeah. So as soon as the ECB and Jay Powell say we screwed up, we gotta we gotta start cutting rates again. The market interest rates are going to be going way lower before that even happens. As soon as that becomes the most realistic probable scenario, interest rates will will, will fall. By Bitcoin. <laughs> Jeff, as ever, this was great. Uh, I think next time we come to Miami, hopefully next year, we might there might be a time when Lynn is here as well. And I think you two would make for an amazing show together. We've actually done a podcast once. Oh, you did? I think that was George Gammon. Uh, yeah. Was that a year ago, two years ago, something like that? Yeah. Yeah, but we like them in person. So I'm going to try and get the two of you together and and uh, talk about this stuff if we've got an economic system left. Um, <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, we've got to survive first. Uh, survive, let's get through it. Bear markets are for survival. Jeff, uh, tell people where to go to listen to your podcast and follow what you do. Yeah, you can find YouTube, Eurodollar University, also the website, Eurodollar.university. Pretty simple. Danny's become a regular listener. I think I've listened to every show since the last one. <laughs> appreciate it. All right, man. Listen, take care. Thank you for doing this. Appreciate your time and your expertise. Uh, see you soon. Yes, no problem. Thanks. Okay, thanks for listening to What Bitcoin Did. Again, I'm not sure if I want to say I hope you enjoyed this interview. I hope you got something from it. I mean, God, what a crazy world. What a crazy financial system this is. And everything's getting weird. And every time something gets weird, it gets weird. I mean, especially here in the UK, everything's completely screwed at the moment. But this was very useful to me. I definitely understand a lot more about it, especially after the interviews with Lynn Alder, Nick Barty, and Matthew Majinski. Getting back into it with Jeff, I, you know, I definitely understand a bit more of it now. But listen... Got any questions about this? You can get in touch. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Also, I'm going to be heading to the conference in Edinburgh this week. Hopefully, I'm going to see some of you there. I'm going to bring some of my Bedford merch if any of you want to get a shirt. I'm also going to be heading over to the Plan B conference next week in Switzerland. Be great to see some of you. I'm also dealing with defeat. Oh my god, what a what a rubbish weekend! I cannot cannot get over the fact that we lost our run. But listen, it just drives me forward. It just makes me work harder. I've literally worked all weekend thinking about what can I do to help our team? What could I have done to improve things? I'm just going to work through it. Bedford will win the league, hopefully. But that's what I'm driving for. Anyway, got any questions about this show? Got any questions about my team? Got any questions about anything? Just want to get in touch. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. I do reply to everything. Sometimes I loop Danny in. If we get some questions about some shows that he can help with, sometimes I will send you to our Telegram group. But definitely get in touch. Have a great week, and I will see you all on Wednesday.